Failosophy is a podcast where we explore the links between failure and success, the challenges that life throws up at us and the resilience required to get over those challenges. And of course, the impact that all those things have on life, on you personally and on the community around you. My guest for this episode, uh, I am so pumped and excited to have uh, because I've actually flipped the switch with this one because normally I'd be behind the glass producing and uh, she'd have the power with the microphone and be asking all the questions. But uh, I am, of course, talking about my former boss and uh, the host of uh, National Evenings, but she's so much more than just uh, an ABC radio host. She's a singer, she's an artist, she's a mother, she's a community leader, uh, and I'm very proud to say she's a friend. It's Christine Arnu. Christine, welcome to Philosophy. Team Arnu is here. Team Arnu, represent. <laughs> <laughs> represent. What, what, uh, what an, uh, an amazing intro. And um, I, I do forget in and amongst that that often people do leave out that very special title of mum. Absolutely. So think. Yeah. And and and, in, and and I just I guess I I just, this year I turned fifty. If you can, you know, the year that was is really a year that hasn't been. And and um, I had I had a moment to to celebrate my fiftieth before it shut down. Yeah, you snapped just people. in before the lockdown happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah I got it my foot in the door, you know. And um, I've come of age, you know. And I I really am sort of embracing the idea of being uh, called a community leader. Um, because growing up, it, you just you women being a patriarchal culture and society, Torres Strait Islanders, um, it's led by men, but it's also led by older people, and you young ones should be seen and not heard. Mm. And I really felt that I wasn't, and I ha- in my own sort of community and my culture, really re- respected and revered for sure, yeah. for sure, yeah. But I, I had to wait for t- for age to come into my own. Does that, does that make sense? It certainly does. And and you've just jumped right into the deep end talking uh, about your community and your connection to culture. And we're going to explore that a heap, I think, today uh, with philosophy. But I guess, first of all, for those who, who might not be too familiar with you, with who you are, you know, you are well known in Australia and beyond for your singing and, and acting and when was it that you sort of realised that you um, wanted to get into singing and, and wanted to get into the arts and, and be involved in that type of industry? I can remember back as far as I can um, in terms of what I wa- knew I wanted to be when I grew up and I always wanted to be a singer or an entertainer of some sort. And Dad having no boys... He only wanted to get in into things that <laughs> that he would want to get into. So it was really all about that all of the time. So it was really r- rugby league in as Queenslanders. Uh, we grew up in um, Milton behind Lang Park. So you'd always hear the siren going on a, off a, a footy siren going, um, you know, every half time and full time, or at the beginning of the match sort of thing. So it was always activities around what Dad wanted to do. But then, you know, I would always say to mum, I was a, that that humbugging child, you know, that always sort of humbug, come on, mum, I want to do dance classes or, you know, take a, take me, I want to be a ballerina. 
and you know things like that and and she'd always say <laughs> we're we're money and you know it, it's sort of one of those really sad things that kids would hear especially when you grow up so poor um, when you when your mum or your dad to say to you, you know, show you their pockets and say, "Where where money?" Yeah. Um, but but dad could afford though to um, get us into karate school because that's what he was interested in. <laughs> Wait, how, so, were you a badass on the karate floor? Well, okay, I was telling my daughter, I was telling Zipporah the other day. I said. Do you know, uh, so I'm going to sidetrack this story. It has, it gets, I'll get to the point eventually, but I said, you know, they used to deliver Kirk's soft drinks. And she goes, what? Kirk's what? What are you talking about, mum? And I said, you know how you, they, they used to deliver the milk, like the milk runs? Well, they used to do that with Kirk's soft drinks in Queensland where we live. Um, and the reason why we got this free delivery for a whole month is because when I went for my first grading, it was to go from white belts to blue belt. Right. And when we like rocked the first up. to the second belt, I think, isn't it? Pretty yeah, so the yeah. second. So it would yeah. go white is the beginners, then yeah. you go to your first grading and then you get your blues. The karate that I did was Zendukai Karate Zoo at Breakfast Creek in, in Brisbane. But um, Dad signed us up where we lived in Woolwind and he signed us up. I was, I was seven, my sister was six, and they said, oh, no, we don't take children because these are nighttime classes. It's for adults only. So he signed himself up and he religiously went to all of these karate lessons. But what he would make us do, us girls, is he'd teach us the, the class the very next day. And so this went on for years and years and years. So it's an investment. Um, yeah. So he basically, he just, so by the time I turned nine and then I was eligible to join the actual karate classes, I already knew all of the katas, and I already knew everything. So I was already ahead of the bunch by this point because Dad was just he he hammered it. He hammered everything that he learned right back into the children when we got home. Homeschooled karate, too, yeah, homeschooled karate exactly. Mum mum would say, "Cause you're being too too hard on the girls," and he was he was really adamant that we it was that children start their flexibility quite really quite young. Yeah. So we we were doing stretches. We were do, like he was bending us backwards. Like this is he, he, it was so important for us to to excel at, at martial arts, and especially as women, you know, young young girls growing up. And then when I got to nine years old, had my first. I'd never been to a class in Breakfast Creek. I'd never at this stage. I'm a, I've gone to my first full uh, grading. And I have not yet, I have not stepped foot inside of the classroom. And actually, so and all of my classroom was all at home. And I didn't just, um, I walked, okay? So basically, <laughs> the two things Dad lied about. Dad said, oh, no, 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 you, you'll, you'll be fine in the shorts and the shirt, shirt. We can't afford the karate suit because you're going to grow out of it anyway. Mm. So that's how he justified not buying the karate outfit. So I just felt so embarrassed. When, when we rocked up and everybody's in full suit and all the, the two young boys, probably around about my age and the older gentlemen, mm. they all, they all just looked at me and I, I felt so embarrassed because and exposed and, you know, vulnerable because I didn't fit in. I wasn't part of the tribe because I, I had shorts <laughs> with my white belt uh, around my, um, you know, around my middle. 
And one of the things you have to do is you have to show them how you put your white belt on. Um, and, it, and he told me he was grading me. Right. He, he didn't. He didn't tell me that there, that he wouldn't be able to do that because of the conflict of interest. He yeah. didn't say that. He said, "I'll be grading you." So he built my hopes up, and he wanted me to have this con- false confidence when I walked through the door, and it all just came crashing down, on like a pile of shit. I'm telling you, it was I, one. I didn't look the part, and two. Dad lied to me. He wasn't grading me. It was going to be some other instructor that was going to be grading me, and he's going to be so hard on me. Um, and then I thought to myself later on, years and years and years later, no one was ever hard on me as hard as Dad was. You know, he was such a disciplinarian. And um, I just I went through. I, I didn't just um, do really well. I was the only person who got the green belt. And I skipped a whole entire belt and got the green belt. Nice. So I beat I beat, beat the older gentleman and the two young boys. And I thought to myself, look at me now in my shorts and T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uniforms don't matter. I, and he was he, he, he was thoroughly impressed, the gentleman, um, the older gentleman that was in the class with us. He was thoroughly, thoroughly impressed. I remember his name was John and he owned his own Kirk's truck. He took us out to lunch and then he <laughs> said, I'd love to, to give Christine because she's very impressive. What a very impressive young girl. Mm. And I'd like to, um, you know, offer you a month's worth of free soft drinks. <laughs> and by the way, I I don't like soft drinks anymore. Like, I Kirk's just don't were touch so soft good, drinks. though. They were like the, they, were, Kirk, they, they, yeah. they didn't feel as sugary and they were kind of refreshing, you know, I found. Oh, and it was just so, you felt so rich. Like, you were the only one. We lived yeah. in a sort of poor neighborhood in Brisbane. Getting it and when the too, Kirk's geez. truck, yeah, and when the Kirk's truck rocked up and we got delivered soft drink, it was like you know you just felt like like the cool house, you know, <laughs> like that. You know, you, you've made it. You, you're getting Kirk's delivery for goodness sake. Because remember, we we also had. Remember when they used to have credit? No. At the at the corner oh, shop. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah you could have yeah. like a big so Yep. Yeah, we had an account at the corner shop, and um, <laughs> that's how we shopped. <laughs> you know. Um, Hand to mouth, you know, every every other day it was like us girls walking up the hill to the corner shop and putting, you know, getting stuff put on our account. Um, so that that's how I remember how we did growth. You know, we never went to the supermarket growing up. I'd never set foot inside of one. <laughs> it was always uh, an account at the corner shop. That's how we shopped. Having said that, that sort of set me up for later on when I chose to actually enter into a dance course. I already had the nimble sort of body um, for a late starter. Mm. Like um, you normally start dancing when you're about three. I started dancing when I was 17, yeah. 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 Your dad was was rather hard, well, not harsh on you. He was strict with you. Uh, Yep. But it sounds like you you don't say that in a too negative a way. He was sort of strict and firm and and that's gave you the structure you guys needed in life to sort of get above – what you needed to do to, to, to get out of or know that you could get out of poverty and, and have a career? Not necessarily because of that. I think that was more in the teachers. that uh, There was one particular teacher that I had had growing up, but that was later on when we actually left Brisbane and followed the sun north into the Torres Strait and Dad opened a karate school on the island um, and it was the furthest karate dojo in Australia. And um, we, we we started going to school. We started out with a school teacher called Peter O'Brien, but 
they his three year contract was up when we when the first year I started primary school on the island. Then it was he was replaced by Mr West. Um, and these are all white fellows. So they're all white teachers who sort of run the administration and um, uh, throughout the year your teachers will be uh, they'll be sent to um, brush up on their, you know, teaching education down south in Cairns or Brisbane. But uh, I think I think it was more I think he, he was he was a lot more crueler and I think it was the the faith that this teacher put in the entire school of kids and the passion he had instilled in us that he knew that it was so important for us to feel good about what we're doing and good about who we are because if you have the mindset to succeed at something, you'll get out of your, your situation. You'll get out of your you'll, – you'll find a way out of poverty. This is the answer to it. And try to make, try to make education fun and make us want to turn up, make us want to do everything um, and, and succeed at it. So, so I think two different. I think one had a gentle hand <laughs> the, yeah. and, and Dad wasn't so, so gentle. He was uh, with, with both words and, you know, and with action. So very, very two different sort of um, ways of bringing together how you would want your, your future path to look like, I think. I love that he, you, you moved north. And he set up a karate dojo, like yeah, I, out, I of, out of just on a whim. Do you think it was always a secret plan of his that he knew he was going to do this, and that's why he sort of signed you girls up to do the course? Then, oh no, look, you can't do it. I can do it, and then uh, took well, it all we, the way north. Like that's that's incredible. Well, we went north because Granddad passed away, and it was that inevitable for my parents. It was like, well, we were. You know, since we married, she's he's talking to mum. Since we've been married, you've actually never met any of my family. And by this point, I'm nine. Wow! And mum and dad have been married for a while, so um, so the idea was that it, it was time for his side of the family to meet his wife and and children. And because when he left, he was a very young man. And he stole. He stowed away on a on a purling lugger, um, because then you needed permits to get into. You weren't allowed to leave the island without any sort of, unless you're a teacher, you're part of the education system, mm. part of the military, or um, working on uh, on the luggers, purling, pearl diving. What year was so this, order, roughly? Oh gosh, he was born in 1938, mm. and he was. He was late teens, not even hitting his twenties by when he decided to go away. Oh, and so yeah, not even not even the fifties yet. Yeah, so um, he he basically got onto the mainland and and he hooked it south, I guess, um, sort of doing odd jobs here and there that he could get away with. Because I mean, I think blackbirding was around at the time and. He could get away with sugar, sugar cane cutting, mm. but eventually he made his way to um, building the east to west uh, railway line. And the crew that he was with became, it's in the record, it's, it's in the actual um, Guinness Book of Records, that they that's the fastest track laying team in so, so many hours that they did. No that, way. And they broke, they broke records. It's in this, it's, 
Actually, still standing. It was mentioned. Yeah, still standing. Because okay. obviously, I guess there's, there's not a lot of rail systems that are being built anymore. So this this was a major one. This was like right across the breadth of, of Australia, the continent of Australia. And um, Dad was on one of those teams that, that had the fastest track lane. Yeah, he, he, he had a, quite an impressive life. And then he met Mum quite late. Mum already had two children, myself and my sister, single mum, and took us on. He adopted us and took us on. And when we got to the Torres Strait and met the family, uh, Dad quickly tried to put down roots, you know. He tried to put down his own identity there because he hadn't been home for many, 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 many years. Wow. And it was about, I guess, putting, leaving his legacy there or, or putting down his own imprint um, on the island. And it was great for the community too because it, no one had ever done anything like that before. But, of course, who was going to be running the, the beginner's classes while he took the other classes? So he had to split it, split this, you know. He made me. So I had been teaching from quite a young age. And, by the way, before I even I, – I knew that by the time we went in, we got into the wilderness up in the Torres Strait, which is what, a little green dot in the middle of a big blue sea. Was that the first time um, you'd been up there? Or you'd, yeah. had you visited? You'd never visited before then? Never visited. Never visited. And I guess they they reckon they they must have thought that if they uprooted it would be on a permanent basis mm. because you know this sort of visiting stuff it's it's for people with money. How know? did you feel about the move? I mean, to be what you said you it was were exciting. nine, you were excited. It was exciting, yeah. Cool. yeah mum, mum was mum was painting some amazing pictures about our island home. You know, the, mm. you know that you could there's you know there's. Things in the tropics are in are in are in, bun, in, the, in abundance, and there's coconut trees everywhere. There's everything everywhere, and it's all free. So, the first place that we hit was Bamaga, far north Queensland. Um, that's the northern pen, peninsula area part of the Torres Shire, um, but it's it's its own shire. It's the northern peninsula area. So mm-hmm. we got to Bamaga, and that's where my mum's mob is. Okay, so after the Second World War. Water started drying up on Saibai Island. They got two decommissioned luggers and did the mass exodus of all of the cassowary clan of Saibai Island onto the mainland um, and took five years to build Banaga with nothing but machetes and cane cane cutters, yeah. And that's your, Um, a lot of your family were doing that? Yeah, so my dad, my granddad, mum's dad was one of the leaders of the community to have set up Bamiga, right. and he was actually the first chairman of Bamiga. So when you go to the centre of the main street in Bamiga, you can see who the past. It, there's a memorial to the past um, leaders of the community, and my my granddad Nadi Anu is at the top of that. So you know, it was important for mum to make a stop because of course we'd never been there either. Mum mm. had never been back to that community. There was a young woman and, and left. Did, um, did you feel a we, sense when, when you were, once you got there? Did you feel you yeah, having lived in Brisbane for eight or nine years already and going back to, to country like that? What can you remember what that felt like as a kid? A, a bloody culture shock. Really? It was in what way? Yeah, because we because well, we had electricity, we had refrigeration, flushing toilets, plumbing, running water, telephones, um, a black and white TV, albeit. 
but it was a television set all the same. Mm. So and and convenient. So you know, mo- you know, motor vehicle, uh, public transport, um, uh, the corner shop. Brisbane. This is what you were leaving yeah. behind. Yeah. Yeah. This is what we're leaving behind, and we get to Bamiga, and all of a sudden, it's a, it's an outhouse for a toilet, and a drop off, and. <laughs> Yeah, it was a drop box. So basically, um, my sister didn't go to the toilet for a whole week because she didn't want her poo to touch her bottom. She was too scared to. Like the whole, the whole idea of going to the toilet was this whole like it was a head fuck for her because she just couldn't understand how how this was how people did this. This is not how you're supposed to go to the toilet. Um, So there's that part of it that that's a funny funny memory, but. Also, you you um the vegetation around you becomes very different. I mean, children play out in the bush and fend for themselves by by what they see in nature. They know what to eat. So all of a sudden, it's like this. You feel like you're in your Huckleberry Finn, you know, um, story or something. You know, you're on this adventure with all these kids who just like. You know, they run run around and they just know that that's where you can get that. And it was fun. It was it was a whole lot of fun as well as the culture shock. But um, I'd never seen so many black faces in my life. And that was the thing. It was like coming home. And not only that, but just seeing how happy that made my mum. Mm. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And meeting so many relatives. But these are all my relations. I am connected to every single person in these households around this yet. Who can say that? And also I'd never I'd never um, sat down and been told that this is how you're related to this person and this is how you're related to that person. I mean my my people are walking history books mm. and of knowledge about family trees and this thing and that thing and that thing and it was it was it was rich and abundant in, in in knowledge that I never felt that I could have ever ever gotten if I if we stayed and were raised in in Brisbane for the rest of you know our lives. So it was really wonderful. That was our pit stop, and of course, Mum said that everything was free. We ran into a couple of young um, girls who were relatives. They said, "Let's go and visit um, our dad. You're, you're, you call him Granddad, um, so you call us Auntie." Um, why don't we go down and visit him? He works down at the chicken farm. So we walk into this chicken farm. There's eggs everywhere. So the first thing I go, is this your dad? And they they didn't speak English. So their interpretation of what we just asked was, does your dad work here? So when they said yes, of course, I started picking up all of these eggs and putting them into my T-shirt. And I took them back to my mum. And I said, mum, look what we found. We found all these eggs. She said, Take them back now. They're, they belong to the government. Okay. So that was, and then, you know, the look of horror on my face. Like you said that everything was going to be free. <laughs> yeah. That, it's That's like sweet. A, yeah, there's a, I think a misinterpreter. There was a little bit of a lost in translation, I think, there with, um, with the stories. I think she was just painting a wonderful picture because she knew that it would be quite different. And of course, we uh, and you can start to live on the land too. You know, I guess yeah, she's well, painting that picture for you. And the sea, and the sea as well. And it took when we got there, it was yeah, pretty rough. And it took us a, it took us seven days. Every day, we'd have to go out onto the Catholic um, mission boat 
called um, Yosepataoki, and um, we'd hop onto that, and that would um, try to take us from Thursday Island to Mobiago Island. And we did this every day, and we'd get sort of a little ways out, and then the skipper would call it off because it was just too rough. And um, this is how rough it was. Look, uh, look, I was. Mum said you're going to have to eat that up on the deck. So um, the deck, the deck um, crew saw me and said, "Sit down, sit down." And so I put the the suey min cup in, in in between my legs, and I. I put the first forkful into my mouth and vomited it all up. <laughs> um, so I, the I first thought... time you get seasick. Growing up on the river, I um, I then went out on a fishing boat up. I was up up near Cairns, actually, up near sort of Port Douglas, and it was a recreational thing. And I thought, oh, I'll be fine. I'll be sweet. You know, I've been on the river my whole life. And we got as soon as we left the headlands, I think I was just like, oh my god, <laughs> this is not a good feeling. <laughs> And it doesn't go away, does it? It just sort of wavers and, oh, and you're up and it you're does. good and you're bad. And you, you know what? You do it. You do it over the years. Um, a lot of times, it does go away eventually. It really does. I mean, um, the mode of the, the main mode of transport in the Torres Strait, and you'd know this because I had the Torres Shire Mayor um, Vonda talking to me the other day. It's like people. Everyone owns a dinghy. Everyone, um, and. It becomes the the mode of transport for hunting on the sea fishing um, and, of course, travelling into Ireland, travelling when you're attending weddings or funerals, um, tombstone unveilings, which is a memorial headstone unveiling, very huge in our culture. Um, and so when you when you do that enough times, when you're travelling like that enough times, you do, you do get used to it and um, uh, that feeling... Uh, starts to to kind of go away. You yeah. get used to it. But I remember if we weren't travelling by helicopter to Badu Island and from Badu Island by plane to, to Horn Island, um, or it was just helicopter all the way to Rose Hill on Thursday Island from Mobiac Island. Um, helicopter rides are amazing. But if it wasn't any of that, because we were the last island in the Torres Strait to get an air strip, a landing strip. Right. Um, it was dinghy, dinghy all the way to Thursday Island. And I've seen, I've been in that tiny little dinghy with waves that I, I'm not even going to, mum would tell us to hide underneath the tarp so we didn't have to see it so we wouldn't be scared, you know, shitless. <laughs> These things were like as tall as buildings. Like, like that's, and I can't believe we, that dad would make us travel in those conditions, but I'm still here. We survived it. Yeah, but uh, it's, that's just it's, like getting the packing the kids in the car during a storm. It's just yeah, you know, that's what you right, do when you're in the right. islands. <laughs> that's right. That's absolutely right. But you know, it hasn't been lucky for everybody. I mean, not everybody can afford travelling by plane up there. So mm. they will go out. They will go out into certain conditions, and it hasn't ended well for for a lot of families. You know, they've never come back. You've landed now. You, you've, you're going to school. That's where you found those great teachers who who had a big impact on your life and and uh, a positive impact, and obviously gave you a thirst for learning. I was in boarding school, and boarding school was such an eye opener about how sheltered my life actually was. <laughs> Even though it's boarding school, and people go boarding school's like prison, it's like jail. But what I'm talking about is that when you start to make friends with with other young women from all over Australia, you you start to realise that when you have when you listen to their conversations or listen to their stories, 
you start to realise how, how really sheltered you are. And for a long time, the adjustment to, to I could speak English, but I didn't necessarily comprehend English. Does that make sense? Because I was already, I had dual languages going on. You don't always interpret English the way that it's being spoken because I can speak English really well, but I just it took me a long time to understand what how to string a sentence together or what people were actually talking about. So school was a little bit hard beyond primary because the language wasn't necessarily c- computing with me. Wow. And um, and that's that's what what you have when you have these sort of um, I mean English is there are no words in the English language that have been derived from anything that any language, traditional language that I, what languages that I was raised with. No. So there was, there was nothing to help me out in that department <laughs> except for the memory of primary school in Brisbane. And that was, that was yonks ago. That was many, many years before that. But I, it's I, incredible to think that you then went on to have a, a singing career, you know, where you were writing music and singing in English and I know you also sang in language as well and we can talk about that in a little bit but yeah it's incredible to think you went on to have that career yeah well English was also my brighter subject um I I loved the writing part of it I the whole the thing about English that intrigued me is the actual language itself and 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 everything that uh where where it's drawn from but I loved writing. Writing is one of my favourite things um, about English. So uh, it was. It wasn't. It wasn't uh, singing that I think thought I was ever going to be doing. To be honest with you, mm. um, being a child in Brisbane, watching Young Talent Time, dreaming to be like Tina Arena, mm-hmm. and then actually seeing that come to fr- actually happen, I, I didn't ever think that that was going to be the case. I mean. I, it, that's not to say that I didn't have dreams and that I really dreamt about when I was going to get voted off the island, for goodness sake, um, <laughs> so, so that I could meet the right people, so that I could be in the right places yeah. and create opportunities for myself. So the only way that I could start out doing that and the first opportunity that came to me was dance. So, and that was to study with all other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, men and women who didn't have to have a prerequisite in dance. We just all auditioned, and if you were successful, you either did the three-year course or the five-year course. And um, during that time, I it was my last uh, final year, and I met Neil Murray. Sixties, I bet. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, Christine and I have worked with each other for quite some time and obviously she has had such a broad, successful and incredible life that there is so much to cover that I decided to split this into two episodes and I couldn't help but just leave it a little tease where what happened when she met Neil Murray. Obviously, we know that she went on to sing My Island Home and it has become a huge success. Uh, She even went on to sing it at at the Olympics in front of the world. But 
There is still so much to discuss in part two. You will hear all about how she met Neil Murray and we talk about culture, we talk about language, we talk about how we as Australians can work better together and perhaps white fellas and black fellas together can create a better life and a more wholesome life and have more understanding in our own culture. So listen up for part two. It's coming very soon. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed part one. With Christine Arnu, I can't thank her enough for spending that time with us. Philosophy, Christine Arnu, part two, coming to a podcast near you. Waiting for me, my eyes.